Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 11th of June. We're back in the Gospels again this week as we look at the call of Matthew and the healing of two women. Our music picks up on the theme of following Jesus, including a song from Sister Act. Some notices. Our on-site service today will include the infant dedication of Merrin Wright, Tim and Katie's daughter. Our showing of the third season of The Chosen continues on Tuesday at 2.30 and 7.30, and all are welcome. The deacons will be meeting on Thursday evening. Please remember them in your prayers, as we are coming towards a period of transition in the life of our church. And now our call to worship, some verses from Psalm 50. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stool or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me.
My heart is filled with thankfulness to Him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in His light and wrote His law of righteousness with power upon my heart. Is filled with thankfulness to Him who walks beside, who floods my weaknesses with strength and causes fears to fly, whose every promise is enough for every step I take. Sustaining me with arms of love And crowning me with grace My heart is filled with thankfulness To Him who reigns above Wisdom is my perfect peace Whose every thought is love For every day I have on earth Is given by the King So I will give my life My all to love and fall Let us walk with love. Let us walk with mercy. Let us walk with kindness and compassion as we walk together and worship God today. God of mercy, for your love and commitment to us, we worship and adore you. For your gentle firmness with us, we worship and adore you. For your kindness towards us, we worship and adore you. For your compassion towards us, we worship and adore you. For your support of us, we worship and adore you. For your trust in us, we worship and adore you. Merciful God who welcomes us all, no matter who we are, no matter where we are from, no matter what we have done, 
no matter what our successes or failures in life so far have been. We gather together as your children, knowing that we are welcome. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. As Jesus was saying this, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Just then a woman who'd suffered for twelve years with constant bleeding came up behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, If I can touch his robe, I will be healed. Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Get out, he told them. The girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. After the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand, and she stood up. The report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. The accusation that Jesus mixed with unsuitable people is one that crops up sufficiently frequently in the Gospel stories for us to believe that this was one of the things for which Jesus was best known. In the world in which Jesus lived, there was a group who included tax collectors and prostitutes who were classed as sinners. These people, who we could distinguish from those the Bible calls the wicked, were those who didn't keep the Jewish law. This meant that their lifestyle was inconsistent with the law, not that they necessarily did bad things. And it was this group with whom Jesus ate and drank and whose homes he visited. But why should this have caused such offence? There would surely have been great rejoicing if their association with Jesus caused their immediate turning away from the lifestyle of their past and the restitution of all their ill-gotten gains if they'd been tax collectors. But there's no suggestion that those with whom Jesus socialised were reformed tax collectors and sinners. When Jesus met Matthew, he called the tax collector to follow him. And just as been the case with the fishermen, Matthew got up and came after Jesus. But Matthew wasn't told to do anything else. There was no instruction from Jesus for Matthew to turn his back on his old life, nor is there any demand that he makes restitution to all those who've been fleeced by him. While we might believe that this is what happened and that Matthew turned away from the ways of his past under the influence of Jesus and in response to his teaching, we have no reason to think that Matthew did anything but go with Jesus. If Jesus, as I've suggested, didn't make repentance a condition for following him, 
or indeed for entry into the kingdom of God. This would certainly contrast with the position held by the Pharisees. Jesus made an offer of grace. He promised them that whatever had happened in the past was written on a slate which had been wiped clean, and so now they'd been presented with a new opportunity to become part of God's kingdom. Previously, a share in God's kingdom had been understood to be due only to the righteous, those who'd kept all the commandments and had atoned for sin through sacrifice at the temple. And we can see how this offer of Jesus might be offensive to those who saw themselves as righteous, that these others, these Johnny-come-latelys, seemed to be receiving the same treatment as them. You see, this was the difference between those who were called sinners and those who believed themselves to be righteous. Sinners weren't those who did wrong, but rather those who, through their lifestyle, had placed themselves outside the covenant of Moses. But with Jesus, the situation had changed. One group had previously turned from God, but had now turned back to him. One another showed all the signs of being obedient to God, but when God spoke to them through John the Baptist and then through Jesus, they chose to ignore him. So now, not only were they, the ones who'd lived what they believed to be a righteous life, forced to watch while others who they had deemed beyond the pale were made acceptable by Jesus, now they had to listen to him telling them that these others would go before them in the kingdom of God and would take all the best seats before they were allowed in. If a church is to be a community which follows Jesus, then it should be a community which accepts people as they are and not as we hope that they might be when our righteousness has rubbed off on them. It means that we should accept people whose journey in following Jesus brings them to us. It might mean that we should accept people whose lifestyle might be termed sinful by our Baptist forebears. This is not to say that we compromise the standards which we believe God demands of his people, but it does mean that we don't reject those who've yet to make those standards their own. So how do we feel about being a home for sinners? Not just reformed sinners, but the sort of people whom the Pharisees described as sinners. Jesus had come to affirm God's love for the outcast. He also had harsh words for the rich and told them that they would not find it as easy to buy their way into God's kingdom as it was to buy the best clothes and get the best places at banquets. But what happens when one of the outcasts is also a rich man? What happens when the underdog is also an overdog? What about a tax collector like Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, whom we read about in Luke chapter 19, doesn't fit easily into the list of people that Jesus affirms. For a start, Zacchaeus is not a poor, put-upon outcast forced into dodgy dealing to help care for his sick mother. Zacchaeus is an organiser in the tax-collecting world. He's not a foot soldier, he's a ringleader. And this immediately makes him fit awkwardly into our mental categories of the people whom Jesus met. He wasn't a Pharisee or a leper. He wasn't a prostitute or a centurion. He was both a tax collector and a rich man. In the topsy-turvy world of God's kingdom, a tax collector is now acceptable. But a rich man... Not so much. So which was Zacchaeus? We know what he was by the end of the story. He was a tax collector who had reformed. Or was he? 
When Zacchaeus came down from the tree, he said to Jesus, Here and now, sir, I give half my possession to charity, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll repay him four times over. Most Bibles translate the two main verbs differently. Zacchaeus says, I give, present tense, my possessions to charity. Then he says, I will, future tense, repay anyone I defrauded four times over. The sense here is that this is what Zacchaeus will do from now on. But try this different version which translates both verbs in the present tense, which is precisely the way that Luke actually records what Zacchaeus said. When Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest in your home. Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree, hardly believing his good luck, and delighted to take Jesus home with him. Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and grumbled. What business does he have getting cosy with this crook? Zacchaeus just stood there, a little stunned. He stammered apologetically. Master, I give away half my income to the poor, and if I overcharge, I pay four times the damages. Jesus said, Today is salvation day in this home. Here he is, Zacchaeus, a son of Abraham. You see the difference. In one case, Zacchaeus is pledging himself to make restitution for what he's done, and in the other case, he's putting forward an argument against the complaints of the crowd that Jesus was going to receive hospitality from someone who was a sinner. The weight of tradition is on the side of the former case, that of Zacchaeus making restitution for the sins of the past. But if we read back over the previous chapter, Luke chapter 18, we see that Luke has presented to us Jesus' thoughts on three other people, and their expectations regarding salvation. Jesus told a story about two men, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, who went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee thanked God that he wasn't a sinner like the tax collector, while the tax collector simply fell to his knees and confessed that he was a sinner. Jesus held up the tax collector as the one whom God would look upon most favourably. Later, one of the community leaders came to Jesus and asked him what was necessary to gain eternal life. And after establishing that the man kept all the commandments, Jesus said that there was just one thing that he lacked, and this it was, that he lacked nothing. And so he should sell all he had and give the money to the poor. So how does Zacchaeus fit into this pattern? Well, Zacchaeus was the one who waited patiently for Jesus unseen, not pushing himself to the front of the crowd. Zacchaeus was also the one who gave away a substantial amount of his income to the poor. Earlier in the passage, Jesus asked, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The story of Zacchaeus ends with Jesus again speaking of the Son of Man, but this time with him saying that salvation had come upon the house of Zacchaeus. Jesus did find faith on earth, and he found it in Zacchaeus. Despite outward signs to the contrary, Zacchaeus was one of those in whom the Son of Man did find faith. On the face of it, he didn't seem to have a lot going for him. On the one hand, he was a tax collector, and so beyond the pale to the crowds who watched open-mouthed as Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. But on the other hand, he didn't seem to fit God's priority as stated by Jesus, because Zacchaeus was not poor. But Zacchaeus was a man of faith, as suggested by his wanting to meet Jesus, and his obvious pleasure at having this opportunity to entertain his Lord. He was a man of faith, and he lived out that faith in his life. 
although the rest of the community had overlooked this, Jesus did not. If we take the traditional view of this passage, then Zacchaeus is a model for anyone who recognises their sin and, having turned to God, is ready and willing to make restitution for the past. This story tells us that no one is outside the reach of God's love and God's forgiving embrace. This is a valuable message and one that's not devalued by how I've interpreted the story of Zacchaeus. But what if Zacchaeus was not the sinner we might have imagined him to be? If this is the case, then what is clear is that we are to be identified with the crowd. Not that we would be surprised at Jesus going to the home of a sinner, but because we, like the crowd, have failed to see the good in Zacchaeus. Like the crowd, we've been guilty of resorting to stereotypes. It's okay for a tax collector to repent and follow Jesus, but it's not okay for him to have already been living a life of faith and good works and yet still be a tax collector. Let's move on to the two other people in the passage that I read earlier. People who came to Jesus for help. The first person who came to him was the president of the local synagogue. While Jesus did have some supporters who were members of the Jewish establishment, it would be true to say that the majority of the leaders of the people that we read about come in for fairly rough treatment from Jesus and vice versa. So this makes Jairus an interesting case. Matthew doesn't actually tell us this gentleman's name, but we know it's Jairus from the Gospels of Mark and Luke. When he came to Jesus, Jairus acknowledged the authority Jesus held by bowing at his feet and begging Jesus for help. He knew that Jesus had the power to restore his sick daughter to health. In contrast, the woman who touched the hem of the cloak that Jesus wore was at the opposite end of the social scale. She was suffering from a medical problem, which meant that she was shunned. So the woman in our story was an outsider. The girl was on the point of death, and so we must assume that everything that could have been done for her had been done. Jairus was a man with some influence, and if anyone could have helped his daughter, he would have arranged it. But she was at the point of death, and so all hope had gone. We are told that the woman had suffered from her condition for 12 years and that she had spent all her money on doctors. All her hope of healing had gone. But both Jairus and the woman recognised that Jesus had power which extended beyond all human hope and that while no one else could help, he could. There were many hopeless causes amongst those whom Jesus healed. People suffering from leprosy and various disablements and those possessed by demons had no one else to whom they could turn. If we're to be like Jesus, we must be ready to help those on whom the world has given up. We don't speak of last chances, but rather we carry on helping when there seems no hope of a successful outcome. Jesus used the same word, daughter, when he spoke to both the woman and the girl, and we can be fairly sure that this was a term which was meant kindly. Maybe we could speculate that as she lay at his feet, Jesus looked down on her and smiled at the woman as he spoke. One of my pet hates is the expression, he or she doesn't suffer fools gladly. It's often used of someone who is eminent in some way and to whom others come fearful of being treated with withering sarcasm or worse. This seems to be the forte of those possessing power or great intellect, and in some circles make such people lovable characters. 
I don't believe that this is an expression that could be applied to Jesus. I believe that he did suffer fools gladly. He called twelve men to be his disciples, who at times seemed both gormless and argumentative. It wasn't fools that Jesus suffered badly, but rather those who pretended to be something that they were not. Those who came to him openly and honestly were treated with kindness, whatever they might have done in the past. In our caring for people, we should not make those for whom we care feel bad about themselves as they receive whatever help we are able to offer. Just as we forgive because we have been forgiven, so we should help others, love others, because we have first been loved and cared for by our Father in heaven. There have been awful examples in the past of those who have already felt second class, having been helped, but then made to feel third class citizens. But Jesus embraced those whom he helped and he treated them as first class. We too must embrace those for whom we care as equal brothers and sisters of our Father in heaven and not treat them as clients to whom we are delivering a service. When Jairus came to Jesus he actually asked for two things. He asked that Jesus might make her well and that she might live. Jesus used the same two ideas when he spoke to the woman after she'd been healed, he told her, Go in peace and be healed of your disease. At first hearing, this seems rather odd, as the woman had already been healed. But Jesus was saying that having been healed, she was to know the wholeness, the fullness of life. When Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, he described her as sleeping. When he raised her, Jesus called to the girl to rise up. He was using an everyday expression for getting out of bed, but this was also a word which prompts us to think ahead towards what would happen when God raised him from death. When Jesus was raised from death, he was raised to new life, and this would be the promise to all who believed that in due course God will raise us. But when Jesus raised the girl, she was not raised to new life, rather she was healed and restored to the life that God intended for her on this earth. And the same was true of the woman. When Jesus healed her, she was restored to the life that God intended for her. Our caring falls short of the example of Jesus if our aim is not the restoration of wholeness. The Samaritan who came across the Jewish man who had been mugged didn't just offer first aid, he made sure that the injured man would be cared for until he was fully fit. Christian care must have full wholeness and restoration as its aim. This may mean that we not only have to address sickness but also the causes of sickness. Jesus touched and was touched by people and that's what our Christian communities should be. Our homes and our meeting together should be touching places. I don't mean that we should necessarily buy into the hugging and kissing culture, but that we should be people who allow our lives to touch others and be touched by others. Our homes and our meeting together should be places and times when people can touch and be touched by Christ. We should worry less about being right than about following Jesus. And if we do that, if we imitate the Saviour, then we might know something of his touch upon our lives.
Let us pray. Lord God, forgive us when we do not show love to others. Forgive us when we do not show compassion to people in times of need. Forgive us when we do not show kindness to those we meet. Forgive us when we are harsh and uncaring to those around us. Forgive us when we do not act as you want us to do towards family, friend, neighbour or stranger. Forgive us when we ignore the needs of those who come to us. Forgive us when we neglect the world around us. Forgive us when we deliberately do wrong for our own benefit. Forgive us when we are dishonest and untruthful. Lord God, forgive all who truly repent for your name's sake. Lord Jesus Christ, you lived and died for us, and you live now for us. You live to love and to forgive us. Accept our confessions and wash us clean, that we may know we are loved and forgiven. Pour your compassion, Almighty Father, on all those whom we know who are ill. Each one is precious to you, and each one carries a special burden of doubt, pain, frustration and inner loneliness. Give the strength that will take them one more step on their journey. May they receive the attention 
and the skills of the professionals and be spared the delays and uncertainties that all health care brings. Most of all, we pray that they will be accompanied by people who really understand their needs and who are willing to share the sympathy that makes everything possible. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Our last song is written and sung by Nora Jones. It's called Come Away With Me. But first, a final prayer. God of mercy and justice, as we walk alongside those in our communities who seek mercy, kindness or forgiveness, open our eyes to see them and our minds and hearts to reach out to them, that we may be moved to share your love and compassion in practical ways. And in Jesus' name, Amen. Come away with me in the night Come away with me and I will write you a song Come away with me Come away where they can't tempt us with their lies. And I want to walk with you on a cloudy day in fields where the yellow grass grows knee high. So won't you try? Come away with me and we'll kiss on a mountain top. Come away with me and I'll never stop loving you. Come away with me in the night.